Hello everyone and welcome to the February 2nd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I am Eric Law, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that an earlier workers' compensation award precludes a deputy sheriff's case against the restaurant where he was injured. Here is what happened in the unpublished case of Ferreira versus King Taco Restaurant. Steve Ferreira was employed as a deputy in the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. While off-duty, he was with his nephews and two other friends when Anthony Carlin approached them in the parking lot of the King Taco Restaurant and began pushing and shoving his nephews. Ferreira interceded and held Carlin in a hold and then released Carlin and told everyone to knock it off. But Carlin returned and stabbed Ferreira with a knife. After he was stabbed, Ferreira pulled out his badge and took steps to arrest Carlin. Ferreira was unable to work for the next nine months and received workers' compensation benefits. Ferreira sued King Taco Restaurant, alleging the restaurant was negligent in failing to provide adequate security. The restaurant filed a summary judgment motion, claiming that the firefighter's rule barred, barred this action because Ferreira obtained workers' compensation benefits. The trial court agreed and dismissed the case. The Court of Appeal agreed with the dismissal in the unpublished case. The firefighter's rule limits the duty of care the public owes to firefighters and police officers. Under the rule, a member of the public who negligently starts a fire owes no duty of care to assure that the firefighter who is summoned to combat the fire is not injured in the process. Nor does a member of the public whose con conduct requires the intervention of a police officer owe a duty of care to the officer. In the case Hodges v. Yarian, the court extended the firefighter's rule to an off-duty deputy sheriff who suffered injuries when he shot and killed a suspected burglar in the deputy's own apartment building. Because Hodges was attempting an arrest of the suspect, the same activity he performed on duty, the court applied the firefighter's rule to bar his lawsuit. The firefighter's rule, however, has numerous exceptions. In this case, Deputy Ferreira unsuccessfully raised two statutory exceptions and one common law exception. It is undisputed that Ferreira sought workers' compensation benefits and that the parties settled the case with a stipulated award. Since Ferreira obtained workers' compensation benefits as an off-duty peace officer, he was judicially stopped from asserting in this action that he was attempting to break up a fight as a private citizen. Judicial estoppel precludes a party from gaining an advantage by taking one position and then seeking a second advantage by taking an incompatible position. Off-duty peace officers may arrest lawbreakers at any time and are entitled to compensation whenever the officer is injured, died, dies, or is disabled for, from performing his duties as a peace officer. Ferreira also claimed the Civil Code Independent Cause Exception applies when the injuries were not caused by an act of negligence that prompted the officer to be present at the time and place where the injuries were sustained.
This rule requires that the defendant commit an act of negligence injuring a peace officer after the person knows or should have known of the presence of the peace officer. In the present case, the restaurant had no knowledge of his presence. The WCAB issued industry warnings against the arbitrary cycle of unnecessary UR review in the panel decision of Jesus Cordova versus Garaventa Enterprises and the State Compensation Insurance Fund. Cordova was awarded 100% disability and future medical care as a result of his injury. The current dispute involved the future medical care and the UR process. The WCJ found that the defendant issued utilization review non-certification notices and that neither denial was communicated timely to the applicant's primary treating physician or accompanied by the required independent medical review form. Thus, the WCJ awarded the contested medical treatment, penalties, and attorney's fees. The WCJ panel said that labor code, that labor code which provides for IMR of utilization review decisions applies to any dispute if the decision is communicated to the requesting physician after July 1, 2013, regardless of the date of injury. However, since none of the disputed denials of treatment were communicated to a requesting physician, none of the disputed utilization review decisions are subject to independent medical review. Another labor code section provides that a UR decision shall remain effective for 12 months. After the defective UR decisions, the state fund again sent the same treatment request to UR even though they were not required to do so for 12 months. The record had insufficient evidence to determine whether these additional UR decisions were timely made and the decision on these additional requests was deferred. But the WCAB decided to admonish the defendant that the utilization review cycle of denials and authorizations for applicants' prescription medications appears arbitrary. While defendant is entitled to submit every prescription request to utilization review, the WCAB suggested that it should consider whether doing so is cost-effective and fulfills its obligation to provide applicant with appropriate medical treatment. The U.S. Supreme Court vacated a lower court's ruling that has ended patent protection for Teva Pharmaceuticals multiple sclerosis drug Copaxone or Copaxone. The decision could have broader implications for how courts decide future pharmaceutical patent disputes. The Federal Circuit Court had ruled against Teva on a technical question having to do with whether Teva had adequately de described the molecular weight of an active ingredient in Copaxone. More broadly, the Justice's decision will likely make it more difficult for the U.S. Court of Appeals to overturn district court decisions in certain pharmaceutical patent cases. A professor at Duke University School of Law also said, that the ruling Tuesday might make appeals in certain patent cases, cases less frequent. It might also make trial courts more willing to engage in time-consuming analysis when it comes to looking into claim construction or what specific patents cover and prevent others from doing. 
In the past, since trial courts knew they would be reviewed de novo, they did not want to, they, to do inquiries that were time consuming. In 2013, Teva sold $4.3 billion worth of the drug. Patent disputes have broad cost consequences for drugs that involve the early introduction of generic pharmaceuticals. And now our fraud report. A 69-year-old Encino physician was sentenced to two years in jail for prescribing various narcotic drugs without a legitimate medical need. Dr. Yahya Hedvat was sentenced to a total of seven years, but the judge suspended five of them. The Encino physician operated a medical clinic called Urgent Care located at 18055 Ventura Boulevard in Encino. Hedvet pleaded no contest to all 11 counts contained in two cases last November. He also admitted that he was out on bail on one of the cases when he continued the same criminal activity, giving rise to the second case. Hedvat was first charged in October, October 2013 with unlawfully prescribing controlled substances, including hydrocodone, suboxone, and clonazepam in a 10-count grand jury indictment. After voluntarily surrendering his DEA license, he agreed to sell additional drugs to an undercover agent. He is a 1972 graduate of Tabriz University located in Iran. In 2004, he was issued a license to practice medicine in California. He continues at this time to hold his California medical license, although it is suspended by order of the Superior Court in the criminal cases. The only current disciplinary charges pending against him are unrelated to his convictions. The medical board accusation against him alleges gross negligence in the practice of medicine involving two patients under his care. The two cases alleged that he misdiagnosed both of them after failing to perform a competent physical examination and failed to keep proper chart entries of symptoms and physical complaints and failed to properly refer them to competent care. And in regulatory news, CalOSHA reminds employers to post their annual summaries of work-related injuries and illnesses before April 30th. This yearly requirement is a graphic reminder on the, reporting, or the, on the importance of workplace safety. DIR Director Christine Baker said the notice provides important data about worksite injuries and illnesses and highlights the need to, to address potential hazards. Kalosha Chief Julian Sum said that employers must summarize information about every work-related death and every recordable work-related injury or illness. The definitions and requirements are detailed in the California Code of Regulations and instructions and form templates can be downloaded. The required workplace posting must be placed in a visible and easily accessible area at each work site. Employers are required to complete and post Form 300A even if no workplace injuries occurred. All current and former employees, as well as representatives, must be allowed the opportunity to review any injury or illness that took place at the worksite 
during 2014. Cal OSHA's consultation program provides free and voluntary assistance to employees and employers and employee organizations to improve their health and safety programs. Employees with work-related questions or complaints may call the California Workers' Information Hotline for a recorded information on a variety of work-related topics. Complaints can also be filed confidentially with Cal OSHA district offices. The DIR Office of Self-Insurance Plans has launched a new, more comprehensive and user-friendly actuarial e-filing portal. This new portal is part of the workers' compensation reforms mandated by Senate Bill 863. This is an expansion to OSIP's e-filing system for the filing of annual reports. This upgraded system facilitates the registration of qualified actuaries. It also allows self-insured employers to select their actuaries and to file required actuarial studies online. DIR Director Christine Baker said that this accomplishment is part of an overall strategic effort to modernize, streamline, and be accessible to the public. After launching in mid-January, Nearly 90% of qualified actuaries from last year completed their registration in the first 72 hours. The high adoption rate shows that the new e-filing portal enables more efficient and timely monitoring of self-insurer financial performance and solvency. Within the next few months, the e-filing system will also have the ability to electronically file required annual independently audited financial statement modules. Senate Bill 863 created a new requirement for self-insured employers to file annual independent actuarial studies to establish their self-insured workers' compensation liabilities. This new methodology is used to determine the self-insurer's required collateral deposit posting amount and has proved to be very effective in more closely matching a self-insurer's liabilities with the collateral they post. OSIP Chief John Roten said that these enhancements are designed to create ease and efficiency for the self-insured community and reduce administrative costs. More information on California's Workers' Compensation Self-Insurance Program is available at the OSIP website. One of, the, one of every four, one, of every four California workers is protected by a self-insurance plan. Self-insured employers in the state represent large and mid-sized private companies, industry groups, and public entities such as cities, counties, and school districts. The state currently has nearly 9,900 employers protecting more than 4 million workers through self-insurance workers' compensation plans. The DWC has announced the winners of the 2015 Carrie Nevins Community Service Award. This year's Southern California recipient is Zenith Vice President Donald Marshall. He is the Vice President and National Director of the Anti-Fraud Program for Zenith Insurance Company. He was a police officer for 12 years and worked as a patrolman and later became a detective assigned to the White Collar Crime Unit. 
He was appointed to the State of California Fraud Assessment Commission by Governor Schwarzenegger in 2010 and elected chair in November 2011. Over the past 20 years, he has worked at a number of insurance carriers including Progressive, California Casualty, Nationwide, Gates McDonald, Cal Farm, and Zenith. Mr. Marshall has also been qualified and has testified as an expert witness in insurance fraud in both municipal and superior court. He has received his certified fraud examiner, fraud claim law specialist, and accredited healthcare fraud investigator designations. And he is a former member of the executive board of the National Healthcare Anti-Fraud Association. He has a degree in criminal justice administration from California State University, East Bay, and is a licensed private investigator. His efforts at detecting and preventing workers' compensation fraud have helped combat fraudulent practices, resulting in reducing insurance costs and protecting California employers and employees. The Northern California recipient is Dr. Lee Snook, a pain management specialist. Dr. Snook is the vice speaker of the California Medical Association House of Delegates and president of the Metropolitan Pain Management Consultants in Sacramento. He has served as a qualified medical evaluator since 1995 and since 2012 as the pain medicine expert on the Medical Evidence Evaluation Advisory Committee. Dr. Snook graduated from the University of Nevada School of Medicine in Reno. He did his internal medicine and anesthesiology residencies at the University of Wisconsin Hospitals and clinics in Madison, Wisconsin. He is board certified in anesthesiology, internal medicine, addiction medicine, and pain medicine. He is a fellow of the American College of Physicians and the American Society of Addiction Medicine. He continues to play an active role in developing the medical treatment utilization schedule, which forms the evidence-based guideline for treating workers in California. His reasoned, thoughtful approach balances practical patient management experience with scientific evidence from the medical literature. The awards will be presented at the upcoming 22nd Annual DWC Educational Conference Luncheons. The Los Angeles Conference is almost sold out. Registration is still open for the Oakland training at the Oakland Marriott City Center Hotel. The DWC posted the 2015 RAND study about the implementation of a fee schedule for home health care for injured workers. State Bill 863 added Labor Code 5307.8, which requires that DWC adopt a fee schedule for home health services not covered by Medicare. To date, DWC has not implemented a Medicare-based fee schedule for home health services. The DWC asked RAND to provide technical assistance in developing the required fee schedule and coverage policies for home health services. The 130-page RAND study found that neither the Medicare fee schedule nor the California in-home supported services fee schedule would be sufficient to cover the full range of potential home care services for injured workers. Nonetheless, according to the DWC, the fee schedule should build on these existing fee schedule policies, 
coding systems and payment amounts. This is the approach that has been taken with respect to other components of the OMFS. Given the SB 863 requirements, priority should be given to, adapt, to adapting the IHSS fee schedules as needed for the WC patient population. There should be standardized codes describing the type and volume of services provided to the injured worker. To the extent feasible, the code should draw on existing code sets. The payment rates should be adequate to cover the estimated costs of providing the services efficiently. And the payment incentives should be structured to safeguard against the under or over provision of care. One of the more controversial RAND recommendations might be their suggestion that family members should be allowed to provide attendant care services when they have the training to do so. The DWC will hold a public meeting to discuss issues related to the Home Health Services fee schedule on Tuesday, March 3rd from 10 a.m. to noon at the Elihu Harris State Office Building Auditorium located at 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. The purpose of the meeting is to hear input from the public. And in medical news, research scientists have come up with a new solution that could reduce the risk of osteoarthritis developing in tens of thousands of people who undergo, who undergo arthropedic surgery, orthopedic surgery every year. Sugar. Osteoarthritis occurs when cartilage at the ends of bones wears away, leading to stiff, painful joints. There is no cure and treatment is limited to pain relief and joint replacement in severe cases. The main risk factors for developing for the condition are, are aging, obesity, and joint damage. People who undergo surgery are at an increased risk of developing osteoarthritis because surgery can damage cartilage cells called chondrocytes. But a team at the University of Edinburgh have found that by simply adding sugar to the saline solution used to wash out joints during surgery, protects the cartilage and may even improve cartilage repair. Sugar raises the osmotic pressure of the saline, which protects the cells against injury during surgery. The researchers describe the solution as chondroprotective because it protects the cartilage cells against injury. There is also better cartilage repair when the chondroprotective solution is used compared to the usual saline currently used in orthopedic surgery. Their research was published in the journal Osteoarthritis and Cartilage. Findings could have major implications for tens of thousands of people who undergo arthroscopic surgery. It's a cheap, simple solution that can protect the cartilage in the joint during arthroscopy and surgery. And in other news, the creation of more insurance distribution channels may disrupt the ordinary course of business for underwriters and brokers. One new channel, although details are hazy, involves Overstock.com, a Utah-based e-commerce site. Overstock.com has sold insurance since April 2014, including workers' compensation, 
through an exchange where consumers receive live quotes, pick which coverage they like, and then have coverage bound. The question is, who is really doing the underwriting? Overstock Senior Vice President said some of them are 21st century, progressive, safe code, safe co, and American strategic. Overstock.com is expecting to see sales of insurance increasing month over month as the company adds more products. Overstock services, some accounts in-house, others it transfers directly to carriers. But no matter what, policyholders contact Overstock first. Experts say most of the insureds probably care little about the identity of the underwriters. As far as the insurance buyer goes, they're an Overstock customer. And it's just one channel of many that are on the verge of disrupting insurance distribution networks. As many as 281 retail brands around the world are selling insurance. Global names like Walmart are leveraging their brands and huge customer bases to sell Main Street insurance products. Retailers can supplement the thin profit margin by selling financial services. And retailers are just one group the traditional insurance world must confront. Some observers argue that this trend doesn't just put the insurance distribution process at stake, but affects the industry's business model as a whole. Some of the savviest, brawniest, data-driven companies in the world are coming. Alibaba launched an online insurance platform in 2013 aimed at Alibaba's online store owners and their employees. Google forayed into the insurance space in the UK in 2012 with a car insurance comparison tool. Their success could leave insurers as mere manufacturers of insurance products and agents and brokers as mere customer service representatives for the companies that will own consumer loyalty and lifetime customer value. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I am Eric Law, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news.